Hi and welcome to the Verity La Poetry Podcast. I'm Alice Allen. In this podcast, we interview poets who've been published in the journal and we discuss work that's important to them. Today, I talk with David Adez about W.S. Merwin, who he discovered when he was living in the U.S. And we also talk about his time in Pittsburgh, getting to know the poetry scene in that city. We talk about the role of editors, discuss his poem on Veritila and the way that the meaning of that poem has changed for him over the years. We touch on his time with the Friendly Street Poets when he was living in Adelaide. And we talk about how it's been since he returned to Australia in 2016. David is a Pushcart Prize nominated poet and short story writer, and he's the author of Mapping the World out from Wakefield Press and the chat book Only the Questions Are Eternal. His book, A Float in Light, was also published by UWA Publishing in 2017. Well, let's dive straight into it. So what we do on the Verity La Poetry podcast is we give poets a very difficult task, which is to nominate a poet that's important to them, and it is difficult to choose one. Um, And David, you've chosen W.S. Merwin. I have. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your encounters with Merwin because I know you've seen him read one time. I did. I, I had never heard of him and I was uh, staying with a friend of mine in Austin, Texas in the mid-90s when he would have been in his late 60s, I think. And she took me to a reading that he was giving at a theatre. I think it was on a campus. And the theatre was quite large. I I imagine it would have seated five or six hundred people and it was completely full. And we were standing right at the back by the rear doors and he was uh, a kind of diminutive man at the podium and you could have heard a pin drop. There was absolute silence between his talking and his reading of poems. And I'd never seen anything quite like it. Uh, I've never seen that number of people completely silent for a poet. I've seen it since a couple of times um, in the States, uh, but that was an exceptional experience for me. And the poetry was gorgeous. It was exquisite. So uh, the first thing I did after the reading was go to a bookshop and buy some of his books. And I've been a fan ever since. Um, and, you know, I've talked about him to a lot of other poets and it seems like there are a lot of poets out there for whom he is a, a special poet. He's still alive. He's naughty. And um, he wrote a book in, that he published in 2009 called The Shadow of Sirius. So he would have been 82, I think, when it was published. And I read that book a few years ago, and it's been a kind of touchstone ever since. Whenever I feel like I'm unable to write or that I need some kind of inspiration, that is one of the books that I will pick up. And so it's an amazing, an amazing book. Wow. And every poem, every poem in it is extraordinary. Is there something in particular about the book that makes it such a useful uh, book to go to when you're feeling like you can't write? Well, for me, to write poetry, I need to be reading poetry. 
And there are times when, for whatever reason, I'm not able to get to read poetry and I kind of lose my way. Um, so there are a sort of handful of poets that, that work for me, that sort of when I, when I read their work, and Merwin probably above all others, uh, take me to a place where a space opens up for me and I immediately feel like I want to write. I don't necessarily write straight away, but I feel like I want to write. Um, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is. Uh, some poets will do it simply by the use of language. Um, uh, the uh, Canadian poet Anne Michaels is such a beautiful lyrical poet that, um, that she, she works for me in that way. Others will do it because they're, they're fusing things that resonate with me. And he resonates with me because there is what I think in his poetry, an exquisite tenderness. Um, he could, looking back over such a long life and having experienced so much, uh, fill his pages with grief or rage or anger. Um, he's a conservationist and he, he's very concerned about the state of the planet. But you don't sense that. You don't even sense a terrible loss. There's just this tenderness in his regard for whatever it is that he is regarding. Um, and I don't know whether that's uh, the maturity of age or whether it's wisdom or whether it's just his temperament. Uh, but there's just a lot of beauty in his poetry and a lot of space for the reader to move in with their own life experience and their own response to it. So that, it does work for me very much. Mm. Yeah, I um, I only know Merwin through listening to another poetry podcast, the New Yorker Poetry Podcast, and there's a poem of his that they look at called A Single Autumn, which is very, very beautiful. And like you say, it's got that sense of a very quiet kind of um, regard for what he's talking about. Are there particular Merwin poems that you would recommend to people to get started if they've never read any? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I was trying to think of a poem to read on, on this program, and I've actually been arguing with myself for the last week because there's about 10 or 12 poems in this book, any of which would would be, would be a poem that I would uh, recommend. Um, there is a poem to his late wife, um, and I'm just trying to look it up here because, uh, of course, I can never remember the, the name. Um, I think it was written when she was still alive. And um, it's a short poem, but it just blows me away. And it's one of the poems that he's published by Copper Canyon Press, and it's one of the poems that uh, they feature of him because uh, they're a great uh, champion of his work. And it's called To Paula in Late Spring. A beautiful, beautiful short poem. It's a great introduction to him, I think. To Paula in late spring. Let me imagine that we will come again when we want to, and it will be spring. We will be no older than we ever were. The worn griefs will have eased like the early cloud through which the morning slowly comes to itself. And the ancient defences against the dead will be done with and left to the dead at last. 
the light will be as it is now in the garden that we have made here these years together of our long evenings and astonishment. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, I appreciate you doing the work of trying to figure out. It's really tough when it's a favorite poet to figure out exactly which one you would like to represent their work to people because it feels like a huge weight of responsibility. Well, you kind of want to share so much because there's so much that you love about it. So it's, uh, it, and, but in the end, I chose a poem that uh, I think in some ways, and I didn't even realize it until I'd been reading these poems over and over, um, resonates with my own poem that I'm going to read today. So uh, I thought that would be a nice synchronicity. Yeah, great. So this is an 82-year-old man at the time, I suspect. He might have written it a bit earlier, but that's when it was published. And it's a poem called Youth. Through all of youth, I was looking for you, without knowing what I was looking for or what to call you. I think I did not even know I was looking. How would I have known you when I saw you as I did time after time, when you appeared to me as you did naked, offering yourself entirely at that moment. And you let me breathe you, touch you, taste you, knowing no more than I did. And only when I began to think of losing you, did I recognize you, when you were already part memory, part distance, remaining mine in the ways that I learned to miss you. From what we cannot hold, the stars are made. What a last line. I know, <laughs> I know. He has this uh, way of looking beyond himself and beyond even us all the way back to the beginning of time, I think. So there's this sort of uh, temporal quality to a lot of his work. Um, and it gives it, it gives, I think it gives it that kind of tenderness. He has... And something that I very much love to see in an, in an older man or any older person, an undiminished wonder about being alive and being part of the world, however much the world might fail him and all of us, um, that wonder is a precious thing. And, you know, you see it in children and then, and then it sort of often dissipates. So when I find that sense of wonder still sharp in a poet then I obviously I gravitate towards the poet because I would love to continue to have that sense of wonder as well mm, yeah absolutely yeah and it is reminding me quite a bit of your work on Veritila as well so shall we jump into that now sure uh, well I, I've chosen a poem a poem that um, that's sort of becoming more interesting to me as, as the years pass, because I wrote it with something in mind, but it sort of has developed other meanings as time has passed. The bridge I must walk across. Is this what it means to be lost? Stuck inside my skin, unable to shed it, unable to grow another. I am between desolations, between the man I have been and the man I must become. My life stories are in flames, becoming black smoke ascending. Who will speak now 
the tales of the ancestors. Who will listen? Who will hear? Who will be guardian of their old ways? Who will tend to their burial grounds, calm them in their restless prowling? I am a vessel for what I carry, untranslatable, legacies it has taken a lifetime to learn. Who will pour me out? Who will drink me? Who will read to me this new book of the night sky, its panoply of trembling stars? Who will decipher the strangeness all around? Who will gather all the broken shards? How can I discard myself, all that I am? I am becoming a stranger inside my skin, my children becoming the bridge I must walk across. Again, fantastic last line. Yeah, well, they come sometimes. <laughs> you work at them. <laughs> and so when you first wrote that, what was it that, how did you see that poem when it first kind of arrived? So when that poem first arrived, uh, I was living in the States and um, in Pittsburgh, which I'll perhaps talk about a bit later, is an amazing place for any book, poet or any literary person. And um, there's an organisation there called the City of Asylum, which, among other things, provides sanctuary to endangered literary writers and has a whole um, massive program of events during the course of the year, one of which is uh, an annual reading called I Don't Know What I'd Do If I Couldn't Speak My Mind. Uh, it's a great opportunity for poets to vent a little bit. And um, I had long been dismayed, uh, that's one word I suppose, dismayed about Australian government policy towards asylum seekers. Um, I am, I'm afraid, uh, a bleeding heart. And um, I had written a poem about that and then I started writing more poems about that and I tried to put myself in the place of somebody who was trying to come to this country and leaving behind everything and trying to understand the extent of the loss and how on earth to come across bearing that loss and yet having to create something new. Um, there is such anguish in the movement of people who are moving because they have no choice. Um, so that poem was a response, one of several responses to, you know, my shame really about the Australian government's position with the asylum seekers and uh, my willingness and wish to convey that to an American audience. Uh, so it, it arose from that. But when I started thinking about it, I realised that my parents were migrants to this country. Uh, they came from Egypt. They were not refugees. They were not asylum seekers. They came through normal channels, but they were very much in the situation of people who had, who had to leave where they were because they were Jewish, it was post-1948, uh, Egypt was no longer uh, a place that was going to tolerate 
his Jewish community, and 100,000 of them left and ended up all over the globe. So my parents came to Australia and, you know, I'm the beneficiary of that move because, you know, I've had a wonderful life here and, and Australia was very, very good to them as well. And I think, you know, they and my wider family have contributed to Australia in many ways as well. Um, so there was that sort of resonance um, emerged in my thinking. And then something else happened. Uh, someone was reviewing the book recently in which this poem appeared and referenced the poem in a way that I hadn't contemplated. This is one of the things that I love about poetry, that it's capable of multiple meanings and that people can add you know, dimensions to a poem by their own understanding of it. And this reviewer uh, talked about how the narrator in the poem must negotiate the boundary between child and adult as it comes to raise his own children. I thought that was astonishing because I, I had children, but I was not thinking of them and I was not thinking of me when I wrote the poem. And yet it does have that tension to it as well. Yeah, I feel like I heard all those elements coming through it. And it is wonderful, isn't it, when somebody will um, come to you or you come across a reading of, of one of your own poems and you think, that's fantastic. I did, I did not intend for that but it's got this whole other dimension to it that I didn't even realise was there. It's so great. Yeah, and for me, I, I tend to be a very intuitive writer uh, rather than a very conscious writer. I don't know how to explain that really, but uh, sometimes, I mean, very often, I don't know what I'm going to write. Um, I don't plan a poem that they sort of emerge and sometimes I feel almost like I'm an agent for the poem. I'm not the writer of the poem. The poem kind of exists and I'm the agency that brings it into being, which captures an idea that the American poet Ruth Stone had. Uh, she said she used to wait for poems to come sort of floating by and she'd, she'd try and be alert to them and catch them as they went by because if she didn't, she knew that someone else would, um, that the poems are all there and it's just a case of, finding them. I don't think that's quite right because I think what happens is that there is an interaction between the poet and the poem that brings it into being and then there is an interaction between the reader and the poem that brings it into being in another way and another way and another way and on it goes. Yeah, I think about that a lot in terms of it's a really nice idea to think that poems are just out there waiting for you to capture them but it also takes... Uh, the agency away a little bit yeah. and yeah I don't know I think about that a lot um, coming back to Pittsburgh what are some of the things that you found in the poetry world in that city that were different to what you had experienced up until that point well I grew up in Adelaide and uh, my exposure to poetry in Adelaide came initially by accident uh, person I was sharing a house with took me to a poetry reading um, at Friendly Street Poets, and this is in 1979. And I was just amazed. I was blown away. And I became pretty addicted to Friendly Street Poets, which is still running. It's been going since 1975, an extraordinary 
um, nurturing community of poets, fractious sometimes, as communities often are, but so many wonderful Australian poets have tested their wares there and uh, gone on to, you know, very wonderful things. Um, it's a small community, and Pittsburgh is about the same size as Adelaide in terms of population. Adelaide had, um, for the many years I was there, maybe one or two at any given time literary magazines going. There was Sidewalk for a while, Wet Ink, Vernac uh, Vernacular, I think, was another one. But not a lot happening in the sort of publishing arena. And I had no knowledge of the Pittsburgh community when I went. I went because my wife was doing a, a postdoctorate studies there. And uh, we arrived, and I thought, I better find out what's going on. But before I could do that, I had, uh, I had an eight-week-old daughter with me and a four-year-old. So we were putting the four-year-old in childcare, and I had the, the eight-week-old with me uh, for uh, six or eight weeks before we found a place for her. And uh, we used to walk from home to childcare and walk, walk back. It was about a 20-minute walk, lovely little walk. And I was walking along... Beechwood Boulevard and I walked past this folder on the side of the road on the on the footpath and I just ignored it and the next day it was there again and the next day it was there again and after a week I thought I'm, I'm going to need to have a look and see what this is and it was it was sodden because it had been raining I picked it up and it was a poetry manuscript uh, it was actually an MFA a sort of final um, submission to Chatham University by an MFA student of her MFA work, which included a sort of discussion about the work and then the work itself. And I read it. I took it home, I dried it out, and I read it. And it, the poetry was extraordinary. I thought, oh, my goodness. And then I'd sort of spent some time trying to find somewhere that had decent coffee and I eventually did, and I was sitting there drinking my decent coffee, thinking, oh, at last, a decent coffee. And there were two poets at the next table talking about a poetry manuscript. And then something else like that happened. There was someone else, there was a refined-looking woman um, at another cafe that I found, who later turned out, because I came across paths with her again, to be a Pittsburgh poet. And there was a sort of sense of serendipity about my landing there, that everywhere I looked, there was poetry. And this continued to happen for the entire five years that I was there. It was, it was just remarkable. There was a very strong community um, of poets, a very strong um, academic poetry scene as well, because there's seven universities in and around Pittsburgh, all with creative writing courses or MFAs. So the academics come from all around the country. There's people who've come from New York specifically to be in Pittsburgh. Um, there's an incredible, uh, there's some national treasures there in some of the poets who've been, you know, at the top of their game for 50 years, um, but who mingle with everybody else. And, you know, one of them took me under his wing and just opportunities kept arising. Now, opportunities to publish because there's about you know 15 outlets for publication just in Pittsburgh alone. 
opportunities to read. I was reading constantly there, uh, which was wonderful because it gave me a chance finally to test my work to audiences that were unfamiliar with it. Uh, I'd only ever really read in Adelaide before that, and you know everybody knew me and I knew everybody, but I didn't get a sense really whether I was any good. <laughs> you can be a poet for a long time without really knowing that about yourself. And uh, and things just led one thing led to another, um, publications, collaborations, readings, and the whole sort of attitude in Pittsburgh is is something that I cherish. I had a reading at a library, Carnegie Library, which has about 21 branches and 6 million books. Um, and it was the middle of winter and there was a kind of near blizzard outside and I thought, oh, goodness, nobody's going to come. Uh, but it doesn't stop people there. 50 people turned up in a near blizzard uh, to go to a reading of an Australian poet whom most of them didn't know. Um, so it was a very, very special time for me. It was a very productive time for me because I felt nurtured, I felt embraced by the community. Um, and I realised, you know, in the course of those readings, that I was a poet. And it's funny how you can be a poet for 30 years and still not be sure about that. But I realised that I was and that I, I could stand up and read with pretty much anyone. It's a very empowering thing to find out about yourself. That's fantastic. That sounds like an incredible community. I want to go there right now. Um, yeah. And it, you were there just, 2011 to 2016, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So how has it been coming back to the Sydney poetry community? Well, Sydney was unfamiliar to me, and I didn't know very many people in Sydney in the poetry world. And I'm actually you know, I'm living about 35 outside of the city centre so it's a bit of a trek for me to get to things especially with young children I found it uh, quite difficult actually um, there are individual poets here whom I know and whom I like um, but I found it much harder to get readings here um, I found it much harder to find a community I find lots of little communities and lots of people doing their own thing but that communal sense that I had in Pittsburgh um, I can't find it all in Sydney, and maybe that's me, or maybe it's the fact that it's a much bigger city, and things are happening all over the place, and it's pretty hard to find a centre. I don't know, um, but yeah, I found it. A, I found it quite a struggle, and in the end, I got so sort of. Um, I don't know what the word is really. I got so frustrated by the fact that I couldn't get to a lot of the things that were going on that I started a reading series locally. Um, and having been inviting poets to read here uh, in Castle Hill, which has been very nice, actually. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that is the answer a lot of the time, isn't it? It's like if you can't find the thing, just make the thing. Um, what's the name of your reading series if people want to seek it out? Uh, well, it's, it's kind of not mine. It's, it belongs to the Castle Hill um public library and it's called a touch of poetry and it's uh it's subject to the library's programming so uh it's been running for once a month for three months and we have one coming up tomorrow and one coming up in another month and then uh, the library will review whether or not it wishes to continue that so it's it's kind of not 
a certain thing. Um, but I've really liked what we've had so far because uh, I wanted to depart from the normal readings that you see in most places where there's four or five people as guest readers and each has 10 minutes and then there's a bunch of people at open mic. And I wanted to, what I wanted to do is give a single poet one hour just to read their work and then to engage with the audience. Um, and uh, that has been, I think, a really nice introduction for people to the work of a poet and the persona of a poet and enabled that engagement. And it has been a very engaged audience. We've had good, good attendances so far, and, um, and they have been very engaged. The first one uh, kept going for 20 minutes after the library was supposed to close. So we've had to rein it in a little bit, but um, I've, I've really liked that format, and that would be the, the format that I would try to continue if I get the chance. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I'd love to do something like that here too. Um, just jumping back to publishing in the US, mm. I imagine that coming from an Australian context, there are certain ways in which you might need to change or adapt your writing so that it connects with that audience. Is that something that you noticed as well? Uh, I don't know that I had to change or adapt my writing. I had to work out where it fits. Um, when I first got there, I didn't. I hadn't published in the States before. I'd published around Australia um, relatively successfully over the years. Uh, I had a book out in 2008. And um, I thought, well, here's a, here's a completely new poetry market, if you want to call it that, uh, scene. And uh, here's a opportunity. <clears throat> well, I'd previously been kind of wedded to the idea of publishing only in print magazines, and I thought, well, it's about time I moved into the 21st century and started publishing online as well. I do remember when the internet first started, there was a lot of um, online poetry that was not edited and was pretty awful. Um, but what has happened over time is because print publishing has become expensive um, and internet publishing is not so much. A lot of the reputable magazines have converted from a print format into a online format. And so uh, there are a lot of very good literary journals um, around the world. And the internet basically enables you to publish anywhere you want now. So that coincided really with my arriving in the States and thinking, well, let's try it out. But I, I didn't really know what I was doing, which is sometimes not a bad thing. And I sort of sent poems here, there and everywhere, and they just kept getting rejected. And I, I didn't know what was going on. I wasn't used to quite so many rejections. I think I had about 65 rejections in eight months with, without one acceptance. What's going on? So I talked to some of my poet friends there. And what it takes time to work out is that there are a million in any country, in America in particular, different poetry scenes and different um, aesthetics. There isn't a single aesthetic. So it wasn't a case of my aesthetic, my Australian aesthetic, somehow not encountering an American aesthetic that would accept it. It was just a case of not finding the right place. And eventually I found 
an online magazine called the Red River Review. And uh, its editor, Michelle Hartman, published one of my poems. And I wrote to her and I said, oh, thanks, Michelle. You're the first person to accept one of my poems in the last eight months. I've had all these rejections. And I was wondering whether I'd ever get one published here. And she, she wrote back and said, oh, well, try these magazines, these journals. They have similar tastes to me. So I sent work off to the two that she recommended and they both published me. And then, you know, it snowballed from there. That's all it takes sometimes. It's just one editor to just reach out and give you that little clue, that little insight into what it looks like behind the scenes. Because it's hard to work out sometimes. It's very hard to work out. And, you know, sometimes you beat your head against a brick wall and you actually need someone to tell you to stop doing that. So I had an experience with an editor in in an Australian magazine who I submitted to, and he wrote back a very sort of amiable response saying, I'd not these, but, you know, keep trying. And, and we had an ongoing sort of conversation because what happens often with editors is, well, often they don't have time, but sometimes editors will want to have a chat with you about your work and it goes backwards and forwards. And But it went backwards and forwards for three years and he, he rejected over 60, 60 submissions in three years and I became obsessed with it. Uh, I, I, I thought it was a challenge and I had to keep sending him work until he published me um partly because i would read the journal and think well look, there are other poets here whose work he publishes who i i think i'm at least on a par with uh in my judgment and eventually he wrote back to me and said you know i think she just stopped submitting to me um it's just not working and um initially i was pretty upset about that because no editor had ever said that to me before but he actually did me a favor because I was wasting his time and I was wasting my time and energy as well. And, you know, many of the poems that he rejected got published elsewhere in good magazines. So it wasn't the poems. It might have been some of the poems, but it wasn't all of the poems. Uh, it was just that it wasn't a fit. And um, sometimes you have to know when to give up. So he actually did me a favour. I didn't see it at the time like that, but you know, I, over time I became more sanguine because I realised uh, something I wanted to talk about that editors, editors, they have a job to do, but they are poets' friends, and uh, you know, I've I've made some wonderful friendships with editors who become then champions of my work. Uh, it's not something that I ever thought would happen. It's not something that I look for. And it's something that surprises me every time it happens. And it's something that I'm incredibly grateful for, uh, to know that you've got this support in different parts of the world uh, for your work. Um, and Michelle Hartman at Red River Review you know, has been a constant throughout that. And she's now publishing other Friendly Street poets as well. So the connections make connections. And... Uh, reinforce that whole sense of a global poetry community. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. The role of editors is often unsung, but it's so crucial because they're they're the ones who can kind of see it from that kind of zoomed out view and they can say to you, look, this is probably a waste of time, but look over here and you might find something that suits you a bit better. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, I, sorry. Uh, I was going to say that uh, I've always been 
This happened the other day. So the editor wrote back to apologise for not having done something that they were supposed to do. And I said, that's okay, I, I don't mind. You know, whenever you get to it, it's fine. And they wrote back and said, well, the last person that we said that to, you know, bit our heads off. And I, I, I wrote back and said, I, I don't understand that, you know, because it's a kind of symbiotic relationship. The journals wouldn't exist without the writers. The writers wouldn't get published without the journals. Um, actually, everybody can help everybody else. So there's no point in getting upset or angry, you know, or aggressive towards someone because they rejected your work. Uh, very often, if your work's been rejected, there's a good reason for that. It might be because it's not a fit with what they're publishing in that issue, or it might be because there's something wrong and you need to revisit what you've written. And very often, I've rewritten things that have been rejected and they've come out better. So yeah, I I I don't understand people who get upset with editors. I I cherish my editors wherever they are yeah i always think of it as if you're getting rejected at least it means you're sending stuff out in the first place and um it's yeah always an opportunity to just have that bit of time away from the poem and then revisit it yourself as well when it comes back with its tail between its legs you can kind of go okay so what happened out there what are you what are you what are you trying to tell me like is this something i need to change or is it just need to go to a different journal so yeah it's all part of the process and at some point you actually have to learn to believe in your own work and say sometimes you stick to your guns an editor might want to change something and you'll say no i'm not willing to change it or yes why didn't i think of that um but at some point you have to develop a sense of understanding of your work and its merit or lack of, throw away the stuff that you can't make work, and then not give up on the stuff that you think works but that you haven't found a publisher for. Mm, um, I've got a poem that's been doing the rounds for, I think, about 15 years, and I still believe in that poem. <laughs> it hasn't been published. Uh, I, one day it will, I think. Yeah, I think we've all got one or two of those hanging around. Um, I thought it might be nice just to end with another Merwin poem if there's a third one that you'd be happy to read. Ooh. Um, well, yes. Um, all right, this is a longer one. Uh, but it sort of captures, I think, his sense of the long, the long gaze that he has. It's called Photographer. Later in the day, after he had died and the long box full of shadow had turned the corner and perhaps he no longer was watching what the light was doing as its white blaze climbed higher, bleaching the street and drying the depths to a blank surface. When they started to excavate the burrow under the roof where he had garnered his life and to drag it all out into the raw moment and carry it down the stairs armload by armload to the waiting dump cart, nests of bedding clothes from their own days, shards of the kitchen. There were a few bundled papers and stacks of glass plates, heavy and sliding, easily broken before they could be got down to the tumble and mule, pieces grinding underfoot all over the floor and down the stairs as they would remember. Fortunately, someone who understood what was on the panes bought everything in the studio. Almost no letters were there, 
But on the glass, they turned up face after face of the light before anyone had beheld it. There were its cobbled lanes leading far into themselves, apple trees flowering in another century, lilies open in sunlight against former house walls, worn flights of stone stairs before the war in days not seen except by the bent figure invisible under the hood who had just disappeared.